Shut up and sit down. All right, everybody, we are back. Hope everybody had a great Christmas. Uh, a day or so late because of um, the holidays and getting everything together, but great podcast for you today. This one's going to be the last one for this year. We'll be back um, after the first of the year uh, just because of the way that the holidays are 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 falling, but I uh, just want to say thank you to everybody that's been following along with the podcast and all the friends that we've made over this past year, and we can't wait to you know, see what 2020 is going to bring. A lot of, a lot of big things happening. I hope, uh, we got a few things in the works and, uh, you know, another big cookout at the total archery challenge and, um, putting together a couple things here locally. Um, and then trying to get our streaming up and running. But, you know, just want to say thank you to everybody that follows along with the show, all the new listeners, all the Patreons, you know, um, hopefully, you know, you're getting more out of this too uh, with our, our giveaways and stuff. You know, we've got, you know, right after the first year, probably uh, right around the time the, the next podcast comes out, we'll be doing that giveaway for that full saddle hunting kit. So um, just really, really appreciate you guys. You know, you directly uh influence um you know the the moving forward of this show um we've got uh a new webcam up um uh, so we're going to be getting that integrated into doing some more video podcasts and some lighting to get to make things a little bit better for our videos um got more videos up on the youtube uh, all that is is directly because of the the patreons and thank you guys so much um this week's podcast, uh, we are talking uh, a little bit of traditional archery, uh, something that we haven't really scratched the surface on at all. And uh, we got a great guest, Jim Eckout, a uh, very accomplished traditional bow hunter, uh, traveled all over the country, all over the world, um, hunting just about everything. So we figured we'd start it off with uh, uh, on, a, on a really, really good note uh, with us diving into traditional archery. Jim, we talk a little bit about his 40-plus year streak in Michigan, um, killing a deer every single year, uh, where to start if you wanted to start into the traditional archery, kind of how to navigate that, where, where to start, you know, who to talk to, that sort of thing. And then we get into, uh, Jim's been going to Alaska for over 25 years on a lot of DIY uh, hunts and over a, a bunch of different species of game. Um, so we talked to him a little bit about how to start that process and planning a hunt to Alaska. I feel like Alaska for many people is one of those once in a lifetime hunts and uh you know jim's been doing it for you know 25 years plus you know sometimes a couple times a year and then he also did um a nostalgic like throwback hunt this year uh it was the 60th anniversary of a fred bear hunt and they went to the same uh area hunted with the same equipment and some of fred bear's actual gear that he owned and used um so we talk a little bit about that as well so uh we literally just scratched the surface with jim i can't wait to sit down and talk to him again because off air we talked about so many other cool hunts that he's been on and so many things that he's encountered um you know hopefully we'll get to talk with him you know in person we'll get to meet him down at the uh traditional uh bow hunting expo down in kalamazoo at the end of january so 
really looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, it's a really, really great episode. Thanks to Jim for uh, coming on and, and can't wait to talk to him again. And then uh, just a little bit about that, uh, our Patreon giveaway that's going to be going on, like I said, through the next podcast. So right after the first of the year, we'll draw the winner for that. And that's every everybody that's um, signed up and is that a Patreon um, by January 1st. So anybody that signs up through January 1st is going to be entered in to win that full saddle uh, hunting kit. That's from a uh, full ambush pro from trophy line and that's the all of the tethers lineman's belt everything that you need to um you know for the saddle a set of muddy pro climbing sticks and then the artisan outdoor fabrications top stick platform that i've been using and raving about all year uh one of those as well so everything that you need to to get into saddle hunting basically for a five dollar raffle ticket so somebody's gonna win that and then that money, you know, just goes back into quarterly giveaways and uh, the cost of keeping the show going. And, you know, we really appreciate that. And so our, our latest Patreons is uh, Ryan Goward, a uh, guy from Michigan, um, guy that I was actually in the Marines with, and um, Adrian Kirkweg from Missouri. And then finally, uh, just today, Chris McRae from Virginia. So um, thank you so much, guys. We really do appreciate it, and good luck on that giveaway. And um, so if you want to sign up for that, uh, patreon.com forward slash Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. If not, no big deal. These guys that are already in are saying, stop talking about this. We don't want any more. I think there's like 25 people in the in the giveaway right now so it's a one in 25 uh, chance at this point to win the, the the saddle hunting kit but really all we ask is that you tell somebody else about the podcast so if you heard an episode or you know you and your buddies have been thinking about doing a lifetime hunt and you're like oh man i heard this guy talking about alaska we should totally do this um you know just tell somebody else about the podcast get get us exposed to more people so that um you know, we can, we can keep this thing going and, uh, you know, we appreciate that so much. If you, and, and if you can rate us on however you're listening, uh, you know, if it's iTunes or whatever, you know, hit that five stars or, or, or whatever. And if you really like us or you really hate us, leave us a review, uh, because that's the only way that we can actually get better, um, is we can read those reviews and, you know, we get, you know, thousands of downloads and we've got like 70 reviews. So, we know that there's people out there getting the show, um, but uh, the, the the feedback has been pretty good. But, you know, if you really like us, leave us a review. That helps us, bumps us up in the, the iTunes algorithm in the podcast. So we'll get into uh, in front of more people there. But, you know, either way, uh, we just appreciate it. You can follow along with us on Facebook. Um Instagram and then YouTube. We just put up a, a, a really funny hunt of uh, Frank, kind of like a heartbreaker. But um, but we've got some some more videos coming out on on YouTube and um, definitely check that out. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for 2019. Everything's been so great. Um, we really really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Enjoy the episode.
Hey everybody, Adam and John back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit, um, I guess outside of our expertise, not that we have all that much on a whole lot of things anyways, but um, we're going to be talking uh, with the Michigan hunter, Jim Ackout, um, traditional bow hunter, um, been all over the country, all over the world on a lot of DIY hunts, a lot of, a lot of different uh you know, species, all, all different things. And, uh, just, a, a a wealth of knowledge and a lot of experience. Uh, one of the listeners actually, uh, put us on to him and, uh, we'd already been introduced to him a little bit from, uh, some other podcasts that he was on and it was kind of just, uh, serendipitous how it all came together. Um, so, uh, really looking forward to this one. How are you doing tonight, Jim? I'm doing good. How are you guys tonight? Good. John's just fresh out of the woods and, <laughs> I'm just fresh uh, back from uh, wrapping Christmas presents, you know, so. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, I was out tonight hunting myself, so nice day out. Yeah, it was beautiful out tonight. <clears throat> so um, that was a, a very, very um, brief uh, summary. Uh, can you give us a little bit about your background and your your uh, hunting style? And, and uh, we, we like to get a background of like, you know, how you grew up hunting, how you kind of got into it and kind of where it's brought you to today. So. Okay. Well, um, my dad um, is a hunter and um, he was, you know, he's always been a bow hunter as well as a gun hunter. And um, I started shooting archery, you know, at a young age. Um, shot a, I guess it would be a lemon wood or a hickory flat bow for, for a lot of years when I was younger. And then in 1975, um, I was just going to be like 12 years old. And my dad's like, look, you're going to be old enough to legally hunt here in Michigan. So it's time you upgrade that bow you've been shooting. He's so, uh, load the family up and we, and this is kind of like a normal thing for us. When we go up north, a lot of times we'd stop by the, uh, Fred Bear Museum up there. So we stopped by the Fred Bear Museum in September of that year, and I bought a brand new bow, a Black Bear Magnum, recurve. And then my dad picked up a, he wanted a new bow anyway, and he got a Kodiak Magnum. And he already, like I say, he was a traditional bow hunter anyway. <clears throat> but then, uh, so that kind of shifted gears for me, and then, you know, I got real serious about it. And then, um, it just kind of went from there, and we lived on a farm, and, uh, I had run of that here. And huge woods behind it. I just kind of went from there and I just couldn't stop bow hunting and I still haven't. You know, it's just been a passion. So, and then always been bear archery for the most part. Um, a couple of years I shot a predator recurve made here in Michigan. And, um, but mostly it's always been, you know, under bear bows. And I guess that goes back to being able to go to the museum when it was still here in Michigan in the factory and, just going in there and seeing all the mounts and everything and seeing the Fred Bear videos and the hunting adventures and those adventures always were in the back of my mind. I think that's kind of what's led to me going all over and trying to do all these different hunts and pursue different species all over. So that's kind of background how it all happened. Okay. And so, you know, you're, you're giving us a timeline starting, you know, certainly back before I was born, um, I was born in 74, so. <laughs> so, so, uh, through, throughout that time, I mean, the, the changes in, in equipment and kind of from, you know, back, uh, I'm not sure if it was at that time, if there was even compounds or, or when they, it, they, there had to have been the earlier ones. Um, 
but how how come you've stuck with traditional? I mean, like I said, we've never talked to you know traditional archers at length, um, and definitely not on the podcast. Um, so what is what, what's kept you in that in that frame? Well, you know, and, and at that time, you know, that was around the transition of you know the compounds becoming more popular at that time, I guess, and um, maybe a little bit thereafter, maybe in a little bit later seventies, it was really gaining popularity at that time. Um, but I guess I just um, stuck with the recurve because of the ease of shooting it, you know. And um, a lot of my friends that were, you know, that I was in school with, you know, and hunted with, they all switched over to compounds. And I kind of stuck with it. And then I want to say it's probably a year or two after high school, I was dating a girl and um, I was shooting my bow in the yard one day at at the farm and she stopped over and I don't know, a couple of weeks later she comes over with this box and I'm like, what's that? She goes, well, I was telling my dad what kind of bow you were shooting and he didn't understand why you're shooting one of these old bows. So I bought you this and it was, I opened up with a Browning something compound bow. I forget what it was, <laughs> but it was a wood riser. And I was kind of like, Oh, okay. You know, so <laughs> I didn't really know what to say or do at that point. But, um, so it was like summertime and I kind of started shooting it a little bit and, um, and I could shoot very well with it. And then hunting season came, and um, like that first week, I probably missed two or three deer with it. I'm like, what's going on here? You know, I can't. The deer would come in, and I just was like, yeah, I can't do this. You know, I thought probably like four or five days into the season, like I said, I had missed a couple of deers. I grabbed my recurve the one night, went out, and a doe came in at like 20 something yards, and I shot her perfect. And I said, well, that's the end of that. I said, <laughs> I can't do this. And I said, you know, you know, so that was the end of her and the end of the bow. <laughs> and so that was my limited, you know, it was, you know, a few weeks experience with a compound bow. And I just, I just could never, I guess I couldn't get my head into the technical evaluation when a deer would come in, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Instead of just doing it, not thinking about what I was doing. So, and I've just always, um, stuck with traditional archery ever since then you know i mean i just i've never seen any reason to change oh yeah um like i said before the podcast uh, you know we've got the one friend who's uh real into uh, only into traditional archery and he's an uh, older gentleman gentleman and you know his experiences he shot a compound and he was elk hunting and he left from his cabin and he i forget what he did he slipped and broke a limb or yeah, broke the cam or bent it and then had to go back and you know had to find a you know the, the town where he's at there's no bow shops there's no anything so <laughs> within probably five six hours actually <laughs> and so he said that's enough of this and so he just brings an extra string and has another you know that that's yep. basically everything um just the simplicity yep. of it so um i can certainly see that now you know for for us, you know, being Michigan guys and we grew up in a time of baiting and all of that, uh, what was your hunting style starting out and, you know, how has that changed? One of the things where, you know, that keeps me from uh, wanting to uh, further go into the traditional realm um, is that I'm not a good bow hunter anyways. <laughs> and I feel like I can't get that, that close or that confident or that um, whatever. So like, what's your, your hunting style? And, uh, has, has that changed over the years? 
Well, I guess it's it's um, like with anything. I guess my style has changed because I get as you're always learning something every time you go out. You always learn and pick up little things. And being that I grew up on a farm here in the Selma, Michigan, um, when I was a kid, say in high school or even junior high, to see a deer was kind of rare. But they were around, but the population was very low. So um, I just would try kind of look for signs, you know. And you know, when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, and your dad's like just turning you loose, kicking you out in the woods, you're kind of on your own. You're going to learn, you know. So I started figuring it out and hunting you know, say the edge of crop fields and hay fields and stuff like that. But as time's gone on, now I kind of, I don't do that so much. I kind of look for transition zones, bottlenecks, um, concentrate on feeding areas like that aren't the normal crops, especially when there's acorns, you know, and I'll concentrate on, say, find a good white oak that's producing. And you know that's going to draw the deer. And then as the season progresses, then I know where, say, the doe bedding areas are. And I try to hunt the edges of that kind of stuff, you know, and um, take advantage of that or travel corridors. And there's a lot of times I'll go out and say the wind is wrong or stuff like that. I've got a couple of stands set up on these farms I hunt that I'll just sit, I'll go sit back. They're great for gun hunting, but for bow hunting, eh, maybe a deer might wander by. But the thing is, I can sit back and watch with my binoculars and see stuff. Start picking apart what's going on and see the deer movement. Then I'll try to capitalize on that and move a stand in there or whatever I have to do. So, and so you're uh, you're still hunting from a, a a tree stand. That's that's you're not the spot and stock or still hunting or or, or well, just on I the do ground that too. You know, I guess it's just uh, depending on where I'm hunting. But I have no qualms about hunting from the ground, and I do do that. So, um, so it's just I guess it depends where I'm hunting in the given situation what that is, you know, and that, you know, it's just kind of how I approach my deer hunting. So. Okay. Now we just recently switched over to saddles. Have you ever tried a saddle? No, I've never, <laughs> I've never, uh, tried the saddle, but you know, it's kind of like, uh, I know we, like you mentioned earlier, it seemed like, uh, there's been this resurgence of traditional archery the last few years. And we noticed that back in the nineties too. Well, then, this whole big thing with these saddles and everybody thinks it's the latest and greatest things. Like we had that back in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Tree saddles back then and everybody went away from it, you know, and it died out. And now there's a resurgence, but I personally have never hunted with them. Okay. Yeah. I know a lot of the, a lot of guys that had stuck with the saddle from, you know, the early days or from long ago were the traditional, um, hunters and i think it was because of the length of the bow and you can get it away from the tree and things like that and that's people i've talked to things that i've i've read but yeah we talked to the original owners of trophy line the green family yeah a few weeks back here and uh yeah they were talking about it being invented like in the 60s (laughs) so we we kind of said how it was a not exactly a new thing um, so the, right. the the listener that had, um, uh, you know, emailed me, uh, Charles, he had said that you've got quite a streak of killing deer uh, every year. Um, so what's that all about? <laughs> well, I um, I shot my first deer in seven 
1979, and then uh, I killed the eight points the first week of the bow season this year. And uh, I've always kept a logbook since 1979. Actually, before then, even when I didn't kill a deer, but I've kept a logbook of my deer hunts. And going through it, this was 40 straight years I've killed a deer. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. So, in Michigan... And then, of course, I've hunted a lot of other states for deer, too, but 40 straight years in Michigan, I've killed a deer. And so you had mentioned and, uh, gun stands and stuff like that. Do you hunt with a rifle still as well? Well, you know, I never really hunted with a rifle until it was legalized here in southern Michigan a couple of years ago. Okay. But if I'm hunting with a gun, it was always with a slug gun when I was younger. And then when night rifles first came out, I mean, when they first came out, I had one of the very first night rifles because I wanted something, you know, I read up on them. I found out that you could shoot considerable distance with it and, you know, shooting with old smoothbore slug gun, you know, you're getting a flyer and you're limited and this, 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 it's always an issue with them. So with those inline muzzleloaders, I may only had one shot, but they were, you know, super accurate. Okay. So I switched to the muzzleloader, you know, from the shotgun when, like I say, when those came first came out back and I think that was 85 or 86. And uh, a lot of my friends laughed at me. Well, you're only going to get one shot. I said, I don't care. That's all I need. <laughs> Cause dear, you guys wish you could shoot. I could shoot. So, <laughs> but, um, but so I, I was basically just, if I'm not hunting with my bow, I always hunted with a muzzleloader or, I did some, you know, I still do a little bit of handgun hunting, but mostly it's always with the, most of my hunting is always bow hunting. Okay. Yeah. And I, that's, you, you said that it's the, uh, muzzleloader for the, for the listeners who may not be familiar. That's K-N-I-G-H-T, not hunting in the evening or dark. <laughs> so, yeah. The, the night rifles yeah. are completely different. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, like, and, and the only other time I would ever use a rifle is, um, or I have used a rifle as in Alaska. So and that's really it. So. Okay. So, uh, you know, we wanted to talk about it since you had brought it up. Um, you know, for, for myself, I, and I think I would imagine a lot of people, a lot of listeners and, uh, you know, for, um, the hunt that we went on last year was a do it yourself elk hunt in, um, Idaho, which is a pretty, uh, I don't know, monumental task um, to try and figure out on your own. But, you know, it's connected to the rest of the United States. There's some logistics and, and things like that. In Alaska, you know, if you're the History Channel or whatever, the last frontier or, or however it's touted, uh, I, f- I feel like is is really viewed as that, at least for myself, is like, man, to, to do that would really be something. And I think a lot of people would say that about an elk hunt or whatever. But like I said, logistically, it's a lot easier, I would imagine, than uh, than Alaska. Driving to Idaho, you mean elk yeah. hunting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I went yeah. through a lot of other places where I could have hunted elk or I could have done uh, a lot of things. So uh, when was the first time that you uh, went to Alaska and how, how did that come about? Well, <clears throat> The first time I went to Alaska was 1992, um, and I was actually had booked, I want to say almost two years prior to that, I had booked with a pilot to get flown in to southeast Alaska and dropped off um, at a high mountain lake and do a, a mountain goat hunt. So 
I booked it a couple of years early, and it would have been probably in the spring of that year when the fishing game regulations came out. He called me and said, you know, there's been a change in the regulations, and they implemented the uh, the guide requirement for mountain goat hunting. So he's like, I'm not going to be able to, um, you know, you're obviously not going to be able to hunt unless you hire a guide. He goes, I can get you a guide that was going to be, you know, two, three thousand dollars at the time, whatever it was going to be. And there's just no way I could afford it. So, and I wanted to do it myself anyway. So he refunded me my money because of that. It was out of his hands and mine. And then, uh, just kind of like on a whim, um, started contacting a couple of people and I did a, just a flying caribou hunt and got dropped off and did a caribou hunt on you know, do it yourself deal. And then, uh, I just kind of went from there just started going back and uh I went back you know pretty much every year since at least once or twice you know depending last few years I've been going up there and doing fishing I like a fishing trip for a week or two but uh mostly I go up there in the fall and I just do it yourself style hunts and then uh you know all throughout Alaska for either caribou or this past year was moose hunting and then uh, black bear hunting down on Prince of Wales Island and on Black Hills down at Prince Wales Island. So, and so that for that first year, I mean, like John and I are looking at each other, and our eyes are as big as saucers. You know, it's like yeah, I just booked a pilot, and I was just going to go in there. So, um, for someone who who wanted to do something like that, uh, and I'd imagine, I think you said it like in the '90s. So that's you know what thirty years ago now, right? Yeah. Um, how have how have things changed? But I mean, how would you go about it? How long did it take you to? Uh, or I guess what things had you done prior to that to say, okay, well, I'm going to go and do this hunt, or were you just like, well, I want to hunt in Alaska, so I'm just going to. I found a place that there, here's you know here's where the goats are, and then just track down a pilot. Or I mean, how does that whole process well, take place? That's exactly kind of how the whole goat hunt went. You know, I. <laughs> Figured out where there was a good area to goat hunt. I found, I called a couple different flying services, talked to different pilots, and I told this guy, so listen, I want to do it, you know, get dropped off. I want to be able to bow hunt. And he's like, I've got the perfect spot for this. He goes, a high mountain lake, you go in early season. A lot of guys don't like hunting early season because maybe the fur isn't as prime or long. You know, a lot of people shoot a goat. They want to get life-size mounted, whatever that case may be. I said, listen, I just want to go hunt. I'm not worried about all that. And he's like, I've got the perfect thing. So that's how the mountain goat part of that went down. But then when it was canceled, um, I just kind of, uh, obviously the internet wasn't, wasn't an option. So I took and talked to a few people and then it was actually through a friend of a friend that said, yeah, his buddy had just went there with his brother and used this guy for a flying hunt. So he got me the guy's number and I talked to him and then, uh, called that pilot up and said, yeah, I can get you in, you know, and I actually hunted down on the Alaska Peninsula the first time I went down there, you know, it's just flat rolling tundra, and uh, that's when the caribou herds are really big, and um, they're not like that anymore, unfortunately, and just kind of, you know, he just figured it out, I just kind of did everything, like, okay, he goes, you're limited to this much gear, so make sure you bring a good tent and sleeping bag, you know, they they don't care, they're flying you and dropping you off, you know, ultimately they're responsible for your safety to a point but that's that's about it you know so you just kind of kind of use your head and plan accordingly so that's just what i did and through the years 
obviously gear and equipment has changed. You know, you got your little list and you know what to take and what not to take. So, so on that first one, did you go with your, your archery equipment or did you bring them? Were you right? Nope. I actually, because, um, I wasn't really sure what I was getting into and the guy kind of said, well, you know, you're going to be down there on the Alaska Peninsula. It's going to be pretty, pretty windy and rough, but you'll be in caribou and, you know, you may not be, there's no, there's a, it's just rolling flat tundra, no trees anywhere. Oh, so no cover. I didn't, yeah, I didn't, I didn't take my bow on the very first trip. And to be honest, I wish I would have because I was into caribou and I could, I, there was enough in the topography of the way of the rolling hills and the little cuts and stuff. I, you could have made it happen with, with the bow. There's no doubt in my mind. And so how has that changed from that first hunt to, I mean, if you if you were telling me how to go about it, and, and John and I we said, all right, we want to do, we want to hunt Alaska, and kind of like uh, young Jim, we don't really care. Uh, we do want to go and have some opportunities at whatever animal you say is the the one. Uh, what would you say for someone wanting to get some opportunities, go to Alaska on a DIY hunt? How would you tell us to go about that? Well, if I was going to do it, if I had to do it in this day and age, um, like I say, I know that the caribou herds in a lot of the areas of Alaska um, aren't what they used to be. But then in other areas of Alaska, they're very, you know, they're doing, they're thriving. They're doing well. So you have the Internet, obviously, and you can use that as a great tool. And um, the other thing, um, I'm a member of the PBS Professional Bow Hunter Society, and if you're a member of that, it's like everyone in that organization is a good hunter. They they've done these hunts, and everyone's willing to share their knowledge and experience. And when you with people like that, you can kind of like start picking their brains, and yeah, go here, go there. And um, so, if I was going to be a first time do-it-yourself Alaska guy, I would go on a caribou hunt. So you get your feet wet. And kind of see what it's all about. I mean, you could obviously go to Kodiak Island and hunt blacktails, or you could go to southeast Alaska, say Prince of Wales, and, and do that. But a lot of people are like, well, I'm not going to Alaska to hunt deer. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. they think deer is deer, and they want to hunt something that they can't normally get in the lower 48. So I would say a caribou hunt would be the best way to go. You know, and that's what I would do. And just um, start, you know, your homework by research and see where the better caribou herds are and, and just, you know, contacting the pilots, the flying, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole list of every flying service in Alaska. You can go through that and see what areas they fly into and, and just start going from there. And so if you were going to do it yourself and like that whole thing, I mean, so when we went to Idaho, it was, you know, there was logistically speaking, we were, away from everything as far as like towns, there was no cell phone service you're using your, your in reach and stuff. And, you know, so when you buy an in reach and you sign up for the program, it's like, you know, you can buy this insurance or whatever, and it'll cover up to $10 million of them to come pick you up or whatever. And that's right. kind of like a, a real gut check. Cause you're like, man, I'm really going to be somewhere where <laughs> no one is going to be. So when you're talking about like, talking to the pilots and talking to this fly-in service, I think that's really foreign to, you know, 99% of, 
of hunters out there, and I would say especially the listeners to to our show. So, what is that that process like talking to you know these pilots? I mean, when you had mentioned like the internet, um, you know, the first thing that went through my mind was like, a they want to sell you something. Or B, there's these keyboard commandos. So when you talked about the Professional Bowhunter Society, well, that's a whole nother thing. Like talking to someone that's actually done it, other than someone on the the other side of the the screen who maybe has read a lot about it, but they and they think they know about what's going on. So what's that process like when you're you're dealing with the the pilots and and, and trying to get all these things coordinated? Because things that a normal non uh, fly-in type hunter wouldn't think about is weather, fog, you know, logistic, yeah. like, like time of year, you know, it's really, think about like a cruise or flying to Florida or anywhere. It's like, it's a lot cheaper when the weather's shitty or, or whatever. So, I mean, does some of that stuff fall into play when you're, when you're, you're planning these types of things? Yeah. And I mean, logistically it, it it's, it's a big undertaking because of what the pilots and where, say, if you're going into these carriers, you can only get so close. And then, you know, Alaska is huge. And a lot of Alaska is void of game, believe it or not. So they've got to get you to where the game is. And when you, wherever you're, there's game, there's no cell phone signal, there's no anything. So you're either taking, like you said, an in reach or you're like, we will run a satellite following, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, or have both, you know, just because. And, but the main thing that you really, there's two different ways you can do these hunts. One, you can call a pilot and they can dump you in an area. And they say, yeah, we're going to put you in this area and we're, you know, this is where the caribou are and they're going to charge you a set fee. Then there's other pilots that char- charge you an hourly rate. So these pilots that charge an hourly rate, sometimes it's, the better way to go. It may be cheaper. So you, that's one thing you got to kind of try to figure out. Um, and there again, you want to talk when you're talking to these flying um, services, I would, you know, you always get to ask for past hunters, both successful and not successful, whether they're bow hunters or rifle hunters, you talk to them and get, you know, that's the, and if they can't provide that, then just move on to another one because they should be able to provide that for you then you can call the people that have actually done it and see what's going on. And the main thing with Alaska, you're at the mercy of the weather. You may sit, like my friend Brian, um, that moose hunted with me this year, he went right back to Kodiak, and I believe they sat in Kodiak for three or four days before they could get flying out, flown out to their hunting location this year. Well, if you're there for 10 days only, you've already lost half your hunt. You know, But you are at the mercy of the weather, and you have to be prepared for that. So we always go in a couple of days early, you know, into town or wherever we're going to be before we fly out. And we plan a couple of days at the end of the hunt too, because it could, you know, I'll be honest with you about 50% of the time. And back in the day when I used to get flown in, I never ever came home when I was supposed to because of the weather. So it's, it's one of those things. So. And so it sounds like, you know, going a couple times a year, you've got plenty of time to um, uh, play with, or you've, shaped your life around making sure that you have this amount of time what would you expect you know again for someone who's never done it before um 
what would you say this is the optimal amount of days or this is this is how you would you would structure your your hunt uh, given that well, information there well that you know and honestly I, I get four weeks vacation a year so it's always a juggling thing you know like this year i'm not going to go up there fishing because i've got to you know i'm married i gotta take my wife somewhere because last few years i put vacations on her with the back burner so but anyway when i go up there <clears throat> i would say that you'd want to try to set it up so you can hunt the minimum of five days if you're going on a caribou hunt seven would be better a couple of days before and after so you're figuring 10 days you know total maybe 11 days so that's kind of how i would plan that because like i say the weather that, that can always be an issue. But then you can go up there, like, I was up there caribou hunting about, uh, I don't know, about six, seven years ago. And I come back, and my wife kind of looked at me. She goes, were you in Florida or Alaska? Because I was so suntanned. I said, it, you know, it was 65 degrees, 70 degrees every day. We never had rain. It was sunny. Wore a T-shirt every day to hunt. You know, so I, it, it, it can go from one extreme to the other. And then next year, you can go back to the same area, and you'd be hunting in snow. <laughs> So we flew into Moose Camp this year. It was 70 degrees. When we left, it was 40 degrees, you know. Crazy. So that, <laughs> that, that moose hunt this year um, yeah. was a pretty um, unorthodox hunt, I guess, from from the, the outset. Um, so, f- like I said, I... I'd, listen to a podcast that you are on the Stickbow Chronicles and you guys took over the podcast and recorded episodes from the field, from the hunt, um, you know, outlining each and every day that you were there. Um, what was the premise of that hunt for the, the listeners who haven't heard it? And um, we'll get into a little bit of the questions I have on that. Okay. Well, um, premise of that hunt was kind of and a little background on it um my friend brian burkhardt had been hunting up there i believe since 2008 he's been hunting with monty browning and i'm sure yourself or a lot of the listeners have heard of monty browning mm-hmm. so monty been going up there forever i think 25 or 30 years who's hunting doing solo hunts sometimes for a month by himself up there so i always had mentioned to brian brian and I are good friends i said you know there's every year that Monty's not going to hunt with you. Um, and you got room for another hunter. That I, I'd be very interested in going, you know, because um, Monty would kind of, they'd get flown in the same thing. And Monty would hike six, seven miles up river and solo hunt for a couple weeks by himself and float back down to where Brian would be hunting and he'd be hunting with somebody else, you know? And then, then it ended up that Monty started just hunting out of Brian's camp. So then it was in 2018, Monty Browning killed a bull of a lifetime. So he, they came back from the hunt. He said, I'm done. He said, I've killed, you know, what I've wanted to, you know, met my goal, I guess, or whatever, a <laughs> lifelong dream. He's killed other bulls, but that was it. And, uh, he just wanted to spend more time with his wife and hunting in the lower 48. So then he said, you know, have at it. So then Brian, you know, says, are you in? I said, well, you know, it took me two seconds to say yes. So. <laughs> So then uh, we started planning the hunt a little bit. And um, <clears throat> one day at work, Brian calls me. He says, hey, so I'm listening to the uh, Fred Bear Field Notes podcast. You know, it's the 60th anniversary of the 59 Little Delta hunt. I said, yeah. He goes, why don't we use all original 59 gear, you know, 
go on the hunt. I said, okay. So <laughs> it was like a no-brainer. He's like, okay, let's do it. He said, okay, I'll talk to you later. And that was it. He hung up, and I thought, well, I've got all bear archery equipment. That's all I've ever hunted with, all the original stuff, but I don't have an original 59 bow. So right away, the wheel starts spinning. i got to find an original 59 that's in heavy enough weight moose on with. So I started looking, and then Brian in turn had to do the same thing. So Brian ended up getting an original 59 that was in pristine condition. That was 58 pounds, 64-inch bow, 58 pounds, like excellent condition. Me, on the other hand, I found a bow that was ready for the wood pile <laughs> that a guy was getting rid of. And I thought, eh, at first I looked at it, I'm like, this ain't bad shape. And then I thought, wait a minute. This is the perfect bow for this hunt to resurrect it and bring it back and take it on that hunt. So I bought the bow off the guy. I took it over to the bow hospital here in Michigan. John Rafferty's the guy's name. That's John, can you fix this bow? He said, who would you mean fix it? It doesn't look broke. I go, you just restore it to original condition. And he's like, yeah, no problem. So he restored it. And then um, at the traditional bow hunting expo in Kalamazoo in January, Brian and I were there, and we just started talking to people and then, you know, telling them what our plan was. And the next thing you know, this person's saying, well, here, I have this from 1959. Here, I have this. You can take this on the hunt. And people, it just started the ball rolling. It was Everybody was jumping on board. And so then, I don't know if you guys have heard of, ever heard of John Cabisa? No. Nope. He's got a very, very extensive extensive collection of Fred Bear's original personal belongings and bows, including Fred Bear's personal takedown. You've seen all the pictures. Fred Bear's Borsalino hat. He's got all that. So we went over to his house one day. <clears throat> he had all the original slides from 1959 from the hunt. So we sat there and went through the slides. I took um, pictures of Fred Bear's original arrows from the hunt. Um, so I could have them duplicated and all new arrows made. Um, what else did we do that day? Brian picked up his bow that day and the guy that was selling it met us there. Um, I, John had an original camel with a K jacket that Bear Archery started selling in 1959. I bought that off him for the hunt. And then, uh, it just kept snowballing from there. John had original Bear Knox. So we, Use grab the original knocks to have the arrows made. Um, then Brian contacted uh, Susan St. Charles, who's Glenn St. Charles' daughter, who was on the home with Fred Bear, asked her to make the arrows for us, which she kind of at first wasn't on board, but then she thought about it. She goes, well, I got to do it, you know. So she did. Um, and like I say, everyone just kept contributing what little things that we took. We even took Fred Bear's personal bolo tie with us on the hunt, <laughs> you know. So everything on the hunt, for the most part, was all original 1959 gear. So and I had the arrows replicated right to the T, exactly like Fred Bear's arrows for the hunt, and uh, we just ran with it. And so uh, our our listeners um, had asked about that. You know, when I posed the questions to them, they wanted to know what is the difference uh, with traditional archery. Um, equipment where 
if you would take uh they they didn't exist back then but if you were to take the first compound bow out on a hunt and try and recreate it right now it would be you know a much different animal than what we have today and the arrows have changed and everything has changed now they're they were lethal back then but it's a different mindset. What is the difference or how, how would you compare one of today's bows or the bow that you hunted with this evening to that bow, or maybe you even hunted with that bow uh, this evening, but what's the difference in the equipment as far as feel efficiency, all of that? Um, Well, as for efficiency, I don't see maybe that there's any difference to be honest with you. I mean, Obviously, there's new core materials, new limb materials, and stuff like that. Um, maybe they're shooting on the new traditional stuff. A lot of people are shooting the fast flight strings and stuff like that. But um, I have the original 59, which I've been hunting with all season since I got back from Alaska. And I have a brand new, re- you know, they're remaking that 59 Kodiak. And to be honest with you, I see no difference in either way that they shoot. They're both excellent shooting bows. They're fast as can be, you know, relatively speaking, because they're recurves. Um, but I don't see any difference, you know, obviously, like I say, there's the, the newer, more modern recurves for long bows are made with more space age type materials, but I see no disadvantage for what we were using from that aspect. You know, um, Brian ended up shooting a bull moose. Uh, I think it was, I remember how wide it was, 62 or whatever, 62 and a half inches, something like that, maybe bigger than that. But uh, he put two arrows completely through that bull, shooting at 58 pounds, you know, with a wood arrow. So, I mean, complete pass-throughs. So, and that speaks for, for everything. So, I don't know how much more efficient you can get, you know. Well, and that, and that was the question, right? Because, A, we are completely ignorant as to the... Um, you know, the traditional realm. However, um, you know, it, it would seem that it's almost like kind of like in a lot of things, whether it's uh, rifles or tools or whatever, everybody talks about the good old days and the, they were made better with better materials and all of these things like back in the day, you know, when you talk about a lot of different things now where technology has changed, um, but in the the quote unquote primitive realm, um, it, it just just curiosity is you know were they made to last? Were they made better back then, or or you know how how does it compare? So it's- well, really, there's been no you know obviously changes like in nineteen up to nineteen fifty nine, bear was using on their limb tips. It was called a micarta tip, and it was kind of layers of paper that were laminated onto the limb tips. And on the older bows like that, they have a tendency, at times, they could dry out. So you would draw back and the limp tip would get overlap, or the overlay would come loose or separate. Your string would come off. So in 1960, bear archery got away from that and they started using fiberglass overlays on the limb tips. So when I had that guy restore my bow, I had him take the micarta paper tips off and I had him put fiberglass tips on. They look exactly the same. But I didn't want to have to worry about that. Where Brian's bow had the original limb tips on it. So not that we were concerned about it because the bow was in pristine condition. It's usually the bows that were, have not been taken care of 
per se, that that could an issue like that could arise. But I took a spare bow with us just in case we had another um, bear take down with us, just in case one of the bows did break. But the bows performed flawlessly. I mean, Brian ended up coming back. He shot a beautiful white tail with his. Uh, I think I think he shot a couple white tails. I I shot a couple white tails as well with mine. So the bows just shoot. I mean, they're just. So from that aspect, I don't see any difference. <clears throat> I mean, just, it's just, I guess if it's not broke, don't fix it. <laughs> right. And for the rest of your equipment, like, because uh, I, I remember listening to it and reading about it, like, uh, you are wearing, like, the traditional, you know, garb of the day, right? So leather yep. boots and, you know. Yeah, well, we were on, we kind of, it was, I don't know, it wasn't, we, we had, like say the leather boots maybe around camp, but to go out hunting, we were wearing um like a knee high boot or rubber boot or my mine were the knee high rubber boots that converted to a hip boot. Okay. Brian was wearing a, a Cabela's Instinct boot that has a built in uh gator into it that's integrated. And then with for river crossings, he had like wiggy waders and I could just pull my hip boots off then, you know. So I instead of switching back and forth like say maybe they did in the fifty nine hunt packing their hip boots and switching for every river crossing. We didn't go through all that, you know, but uh, for the most part, everything else was all original gear, you know, original 59 broadheads, quivers, the whole nine yards. Okay. And this, much of that equipment changed um, over the decades? Well, obviously, yeah. I mean, you can look at, you know, look at the difference in the clothing, mm-hmm. you know. Nowadays, everyone's wearing, you know, high-tech gear, whether it's Sitka or Kuyu and, you know, stuff like that. And that's, that's one thing, you know, I was going to, when we were kind of, not to get off track here, but when we were talking about going to Alaska, that's most important thing that I can't, get, you know, stress enough is you have to have good rain gear because it's going to rain most likely. And it will ruin your hunt if you don't have good rain gear. So, and it's expensive, but it's worth the money. Well, I think if you're putting that sort of money into a, a trip to go, I mean, and, and we encountered that, and, and there were definitely trade-offs, but just going on our first elk hunt, and it's like you buy it to do that, and you're investing this much time and this much money and this yep. much everything into the tags, you know, you're not going to go out there and, you know, that expensive rain gear, you know, at three or $400 or something isn't going to be worth the amount of heartache or inability to hunt or uncomfortable or dangerous um, conditions that you're going to put yourself in if you don't have it. Right. 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 Exactly. You know, and you know, and you're alluding back to the, you know, using original 59 gear or just shooting traditional archery in general. When I guess when I'm on these hunts, the last, the last thing I want to worry about is my bow or even think about it. So I just never, I mean, Nothing against shooting a compound bow. I think they're great, but I just don't, they get banged up or, you know what I mean? Like you said, your friend had an issue with a cam break or something. I don't want to have to worry about anything. If a string breaks, I throw another string on and keep going, you know, stuff like that. So I'd rather worry about other gear, like my rain gear and stuff like that. So that's, like I say, that's all personal preference. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, it's not, we struggle here, I think, with our mindset on this show 
um, not between traditional archery and compound archery, um, or rifle hunting and bow hunting. It's, we, we are very passionate about bow hunting in the, I don't know, I, I guess how intimate it is. Um, you know, you right. have to be so close that every, I feel like every deer that I see with a, with a bow, I could kill with a rifle. Um, but when you enter in crossbows and air bows and atlatls and slingshots and spears and everything, um, you know, it it becomes real hypocritical real fast. Um, because if I say like, I'm better than a rifle hunter or a crossbow hunter, uh, the guy with the, the 59, recurve in the bolo right. tie says well you know this and then the self bow guy says well i made my own you know um so it's it's a really uh slippery slope so it's it's not it saying this equipment or that equipment it's it's, it's it is personal preference you know exactly and, you know and like i always tell everyone i don't care what you hunt with if you're, you're ethical i could give a crap hunt with it have fun if you're enjoying the outdoors and have fun that's the way i look at it so you mentioned ethical, right? So yeah. with a with a recurve, traditional equipment, longbow, um, where is your your range and self control, and and how has that affected a the style of hunting that we talked about at the beginning, and like opportunity or kind of like mindset when you're in the field. I guess because I've never been a hunted with, you know, a compound with sites that I know that <clears throat> I hear guys always shooting stuff at 40, 50 yards now. And I guess even further, I, I guess I don't really know what they do, but I don't, um, I don't think that, I guess when I usually set myself up like for deer hunting or bear hunting or anything like that, I'm always under 30 yards. I mean, I feel very confident out to 30 yards and I've shot stuff beyond 30 yards. And just, you know, just everything seemed right, you know, but obviously the closer the better for any animal, whether you're, or even if I was shooting the compound, you know, I'm sure you guys feel the same way you want it close, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, uh, but you know, anything inside of 20, 25 yards, but it doesn't mean that I wouldn't shoot at something further if everything was presented itself properly, but I practice, you know, always out to 30 yards and, um, a couple of years ago, I shot, I don't know, it was maybe three or four years ago, I shot an antelope out in Utah, I think at like 27 yards, but I had been practicing out to 30. I shot, uh, a couple of years prior to that, I shot my mountain goat at like 30 yards, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd say, out to, you know, I, I don't have an issue shooting out to 30, 35 yards, but uh, closer to better, so. <laughs> Well, I I totally agree with that. I mean, John shoots at all these every distance, um, but he, you know, is one of these guys that shoots religiously, and I think the traditional guys are even, you know, more yeah. regimented. Um, yeah. But, I mean, Thursday, I had deer everywhere around me, and I passed a shot at, 31 33 yards something like that it was 16 degrees and i was really cold and Mm -hmm. i mean i was at full draw and i could have taken the shot 
and I, you know, it was just in my gut. I didn't really, I didn't really want to take that shot. And I, you know, I know I can make that shot. I've shot deer farther than that, but it, right. 16 degrees, bulky clothing. There's a lot of variables. Um, exactly. Nope. And like I say, just, I guess, given the situation, you know, so but closer, the closer it's better. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, so. for sure. But I mean, that's the, the traditional archery thing, right? Like the hashtags, I hunt close, right? That's yep. what I think of when I think of traditional archery is I, th- I personally, just because I'm ignorant to the subject, but to me, it's, you know, from the ground, from six feet away, you know, yep. that sort of a, that sort of a, a hunt. And I mean, I'm, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm pretty envious of that. I'm, that's one of the things where I would love to be be able to do that, and but I don't think I try to put myself in those situations because I kind of fall back on well I can sh- I know how I can shoot and I know how far I can right. shoot so I don't set up for that. Do you see yourself setting up differently uh, when you're hunting from the ground or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. You know, in I just always try to set myself up so that I can have a, you know, a close encounter with stuff. And, um, I don't know if we talked, I'd mentioned to you before when we talked on the phone about that bear hunt in Alaska a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I just wanted to kill, I'd shot several bears and I'm like, you know, I really just want to spot and stalk and get close to one on the ground with my bow and try to get it, you know, and I had messed around with a couple in Alaska, you know, sneaking up on them in the past. Um, even in the UP, um, I snuck up on a giant bear a couple springs ago. I mean, just a monster. And I got within like 18 yards of him. And I said, you know what? I've got to do this. I've got to go somewhere where I can spot and stalk a bear. So uh, I put in for a tag on Prince of Wales Island. And uh, a buddy of mine, he had hunted, the, he had drawn a tag the year before. So he wanted to go along with me and film the hunt. So he did. So we got into a big bear and um, <clears throat> we had that bear around us off and on maybe a little over two hours. There was a time she was 20 yards from me catching salmon. And I just kept waiting and he kept looking at me and I'm like, oh, no. and I feel right. You know, and then finally I ended up shooting the bear at uh, nine feet. Say, <laughs> so, I just watched that video. That bear, bear was close. <laughs> yeah. So, but there was other times he was, you know, maybe the shot, I just didn't feel right when he was at like 18, 20 yards. or there was a little bit of a, uh, you know, that grass growing along the river there when he was catching salmon. I just, you know, think of arrow deflection. And not that the arrow probably wouldn't have went through, but all that stuff runs through your mind, you know. But, um, but you know, and then, like I say, other times you just, you know, when I, when I shot my mountain goat, that was like a steep downhill angle, and it was 30 yards, but I had been practicing that all summer, and I just felt right, you know. I knew I could make the shot, and it worked. So when you say like all the stuff that goes through your mind, it, like I've never seen a bear in the in a hunting situation. I've seen bears in the wild, but not not while I was hunting. Like when you're there within, like I would say bow range, and anyone that's hunted ever has been within bow range of something where you couldn't get a shot or you didn't feel comfortable with the shot. Um, but not on the ground with a bear, you know, that's feeding and all, all of these things. So what, what kind of goes through your mind and how do you like 
settle your thoughts or you're just like, well, this is what I'm here for. I mean, how do you plan for that? What, I mean, what is going through your mind at that point? Um, I guess I don't even really think about it because I, like you said that I knew I was there to do that. And that's what I was doing. There were other, there was multiple bears catching salmon up and down that river. You know, so there's bears all over. Um, I've been around bears quite a bit. Um, even elk hunting in Colorado, sitting over like a wallow, I've had bears come right in there and rolling around in the mud close to me and bear hunting in the UP all the time. And in Ontario, I just, um, I'm used to them, I guess. And they don't really, some people get really excited. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I shouldn't say that. I'm not excited. Um, some people are scared of them. I respect them. Um, but I guess being there in Alaska, I knew that's what I was there to do. And I knew I was going to have multiple encounters just based on my friend being there the year before and talking to other friends that had hunted the island. So I knew I'd be in the bears constantly. And, um, and we were. I mean, there was bears fishing all around us, you know, but I just kind of had my mindset on that one bigger bear that we had seen and I was going to concentrate on him. And that was that. Uh, you guys see it worked out. But, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll link that video um, on the website when this comes out. Um, but let me rephrase the question then. So the first time <laughs> that you uh, encountered a bear while you were hunting or, or whatever, um, what was going through your mind or how was that different? I mean. Um, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the first time. Yeah. The first time I was pretty wound up, you know. <laughs> wow, there's a bear and he's right there and I can, you know, and I was actually bear hunting and I ended up shooting him and that was another thing. I went on, uh, um, was going on an archery hunt up in Ontario and um, just before we left, the outfitter's like, you know, I, the baits that are getting hit aren't really that good for bow hunting. I don't think, in my opinion, if you're using that recurve bow, I don't think you'll be able to get a shot. Maybe you should bring a gun. So, Sure enough, we get up there and the sights weren't going to work for bow hunting. And, um, but then this big bear walks right in on me and he's like 15 yards in front of me. And I'm sitting there with a the gun and I'm like, well, what do I do? I'm like, well, it's my first bear hunt. So I shot him. It was a nice bear, like a 300 pounder. But then the, I said, well, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to shoot, do that. So I'm going to bow hunt. So then the next year I had a tag here in Michigan. So then I shot a bear with my bow and that bear come in and, you know, it's just kind of like, wow, he's right there. You know, this is all coming together. Like, you know, you get pretty fired up and you got a bear under 12 yards and I was in a, like a 10 foot height, like homemade ladder stand and the bear was that close. <laughs> so, uh, and he was actually up on a, um, you know, those cedar trees will fall down and it's got the big root ball. Mm-hmm. You know, he was walked up on that tree. So he was almost eye level with it, about 12 <laughs> yards. Well, it's kind of neat, but, uh, you know, something all right through them. Then afterward, that's when it really kicks in, you know, after you <laughs> then the adrenaline goes crazy. So, so with your, um, your setup, how do you, how heavy are your arrows? I mean, like the final weight, do you, do you weigh them? I mean, are you, yeah, um, most everything I hunt with now is, Averages around 750 to 800 grains finished. Um, shooting the main bow I hunt with the last uh, several years is uh, I'm drawing, uh, let's say, about 57 pounds. That's a bear takedown. So 
Uh, prior to that, probably for about 15 years, 18 years, I hunted with 60 pounds always, you know, or 62 pounds. So um, I'm always right around, you know, that 55 to 60-some pound mark. And I'm always trying to just shoot the heaviest arrow I can. And I shoot, um, I always shoot wood arrows, um, except the only thing I didn't shoot uh, with a wood arrow was I shot a bear, I think, a couple white tails with a grizzly stick arrow. Mm-hmm. But I was using the original bear razors, just with a converted tip, and I was screwing them into that. And I shot my mountain goat with uh, the grizzly stick arrow. And then uh, I went right back to wood after that. So I've always used wood, and I always have used the original bear razors for everything. And so, the why why wood? Um, I don't know. I guess it's just. <laughs> nostalgia or something i don't know i just like wood arrows okay i don't have an issue i've never had an issue with them i always shoot feathers and i don't ever really have a i don't i guess i don't have a reason why except i like wood (laughs) okay yeah and i I mean i guess i just want to tell the listener who may be just as ignorant as we are on uh yeah it's not that they're cheaper because i think they cost more than carbons now Right. I just ordered. Yeah, I ordered a dozen shafts today from a guy, and they're footed, and like I think it's going to be told me like around 150, 160 just for the dozen bare shafts. Then I got to make the arrows. So, um, so I, that not that it's any cheaper, like I say, but I just like shooting wood. Right, and then with your with your draw weights, there's no let off. So <laughs> that's the biggest thing that I've. I mean, I've got a, a 50 pound Martin takedown. And I thought, oh, it's just going to be 50 pounds. Well, it's 50 pounds at 28, and I've got like a 30-inch draw, a 29-inch draw. It stacks pretty hard, and that bow, I mean, was much faster than I expected. Um, It was was much more than I I had anticipated when when I had ordered it, so. Yeah, that's one thing I know a lot of, I'll have, you know, friends or or just who people say, hey, you know, I'm really thinking about getting a uh, getting a recurve or a longbow. What kind of poundage do you think I should get? I go, what are you shooting right now? And they'll be saying, I'm shooting 65 or 70 with a compound. You guys should go to 60. I'm like, no. <laughs> it's not going to happen. They're like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you, you just never, you're going you're gonna to get frustrated. It's too much from the start. So start with 45 or 50. I mean, a 45-pound recurve will kill anything with a properly tuned air on a sharp broadhead. So just about it, you know, most of us are hunting deer anyway. And they'll definitely do it, no problem. So don't overbow yourself and get discouraged, you know. It doesn't, I mean, some people think, you know, well, you got to have this, 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 you know, not to kill a deer. Well, think about how big a deer is. It's not that big. And if you've got a heavy arrow, it's going to go through it, you know. Mm-hmm. So. And so for uh, someone that was thinking about, getting into traditional archery or anything like that. I mean, you've, you've kind of laid out the, the draw weights and things like that, but, um, you know, much like, uh, compounds, the price spectrum is all over the place from a Samick Sage somewhere around 150 bucks to, you know, a custom, anything that you want, you know, thousand dollars plus. Right. And then in the, the used realm, you know, you could find one at a garage sale, but, you know, I, the thing that 
frightens me is I've always heard about the twisted limbs and, and, and sure. all sorts of other things. So, um, for someone looking to get into traditional archery or someone that wanted to play around with it or, 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 you know, start the journey, um, how would you, um, direct them in, in that process? Well, I would, you know, a lot of states have nowadays, they have throughout their bow hunting organizations that are, you know, the state ones, they have a traditional bow hunting organization within the state. That's a really good place to start. And I'm sure most of those all have websites. Um, here in Michigan, uh, Compton Traditional Bow Hunters has their big rendezvous every year in June, Father's Day weekend. Anybody can go to that thing. And I don't care if you've never even had the slightest inkling of what a traditional bow is. You can go there and the vendors are like, here, here you go. Take my bow and go shoot it. Here's some arrows. Need some direction. Here, try this, try that. That's a really good way to start. Okay. You know, and then, um, then it's just, you know, it's kind of networking. You'll start meeting people and then everyone, you know, I'm the first one. Someone wants to come up here, grab one of this, here, try this bow, see if this works for you. Try this, you know, because everyone's different, you know, it's like buying a Ford or a Chevy. Some people like either or for whatever reason. You know, some people may not like the handle on this bow, but they like the handle on that bow. You know, so there's a lot of them out there to try. Like you said, you can go from one end of the spectrum to the other. So a good place to start is something like that or one of the traditional bow shoots that are going on around the state and just kind of go from there, you know. Okay. I mean, like I say, it is, I mean, it's been around forever, but it's one of those things where I feel like you almost have to know somebody because everybody's yeah. got their own opinion and, you know, sure. until you, you like, I don't want to, I don't want this to sound like wrong, but like for personally, it's like you find like one of these old timers that wants to sit down and talk and they've got all the stuff and they've done everything, you know, there's so much value in, in that more so than anything you could search on the internet because you never know who's on the end of hell, a a podcast like this, you know, people ask John and I questions and we're like, Hey, you know, that's kind of like out of our spectrum. Right. Um, But to sit down with someone who's, you know, got the stack full of, wooden right. arrows and the, all the fletchings and all, you know, that's doing it on a regular basis. Um, it's invaluable. So, right. And it'd be the same with me. If I wanted to switch over to a compound, well, the first thing I'm going to do is go to someone that wants to shoot a compound and say, Hey, what do I need to do here? You know? And I know that one of you guys would be more than willing to share what knowledge you have of it. Same as I, um, you know, I don't know any of my friends that shoot traditional archery that wouldn't share their knowledge to try to get someone else into it. And it's something that we enjoy doing, you know, and that's what it's about. I mean, the, the whole bow hunting community as a whole, they're, they're just like that, in my opinion. I don't care what you're shooting, but we always want to, you know, get more people into it and enjoy what we enjoy. There's even, I mean, like, we're members of the Muskegon Bowman Club. There's a group of you know, the older cats that they're there every morning, you know, through the week. It's like their, their job. Basically the guys show up and they have their lunchbox and stuff, but they all shoot, you know, like this time of year, they're all shooting their traditional bows. They all have compound bows too. But if yep. you go in, I mean, and they'll, uh, like the one guy, he builds the strings, you know, and if you, if you have any questions, those guys, they will talk your ear off. You won't be able to get out of there, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah. Well, that's, that's exactly it. There's enough people out there that are willing to share their knowledge and get someone else into it because it's fun, you know? Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm like afraid of getting into it because when I get into it, I know I'm just going to go nuts and I probably won't even pick up my freaking compounds. That's what I'm afraid <laughs> yep. of. And that happens, you know, I, uh, several years ago, my dad called me one day and my, I, I live not far from my, the farm I grew up on and my parents have since sold it and live in the UP, but my dad had called me when they still lived down here. Something about the neighbor just bought a compound. Could I go help him site it? And I knew a little bit about it. And I said, yeah, I went over there. So I helped him out and I said, get all those pins off there. Just put one on there. Why does it have all these? I said, I, I don't know, but you don't, you know, you know? So <laughs> he started shooting out to 20 yards. He's like, wow. I go, so you can shoot it at 15, 20 or probably 25. It's going to hit the same spot. Basically. And it was, he goes, well, you need to shoot with me. I go, I got my bow in the truck. So then, uh, he goes, well, go get it. When I got that, he just kind of was staring at me. He goes, well, what's that? <laughs> I go, oh, he goes, what? I go, yeah. He goes, then I started shooting. He goes, well, can I shoot? And he started shooting. And he's like, well, why did I buy all this? I said, I don't know. <laughs> you know, he goes, well, I don't need all this. I already, you know, and then he went the complete hole. Opposite direction. He went right out. He didn't even out with that bow. He got rid of it and he went and he bought a recurve. Then he went to Lombo. Then he started making his own bows, making everything. You know, so he went to the whole other extreme, you know. So, and he's like, I understand why you don't out with that. I said, well, I guess sometimes in the hunting situation, I don't, you don't have time for technical evaluation. Sometimes you got to make the shot happen, like right now, you know. Let the instinct and, take over. Yeah, let the instinct take over, and I don't, I mean, I guess you can do with a compound. I don't know, because so, I don't have any experience with that. So I guess it's like uh, pheasant hunting or bird hunting. You still gun up and make the shot type thing. So stop thinking about it. So. <laughs> yeah, when you were, you were talking about that guy, not, not necessarily of him saying, why do I need all this, but taking down that road of, it just building everything and doing it like John's over here going like, Oh my gosh, like should I, should I, should I not? Cause I mean, like, you know, our listeners know, but John has a, a, a his own string jig here for making compound strings just because he got a bug up his butt one day and he was like, I, I think I can make a string. I watched a YouTube video on it and yep. now he's made a hundred strings and, and cables yeah. and contacted companies and and all of this stuff. So it's it really is just a matter. And he makes you know furniture and and all sorts of other things. Well, so it's yep, just a matter of time. Exactly. Yep, it's like anything you get into it, or you know, fly fishing or whatever it is. You know, the sky's the limit on it. It's all fun stuff. You know. Well, I mean, Jim, I think we could talk to you here for you know forever because like we've barely scratched the surface on all the things that. Uh, you know that that you've encountered throughout your many years of of bow hunting but we've you know we're just over an hour here and we kind of covered the main points that we wanted to to cover but uh we definitely will have to do this again um and 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 we'll we'll get some feedback on this and and kind of circle back on a, a lot of this stuff but i just really appreciate you taking the time and uh, you know you know thanks to charles for for connecting us because i mean i could listen to hunting stories all day long because i've got yeah. so many questions you know <laughs> well, it's been fun i really appreciate you guys having me on it's been a lot of fun 
sure. So I think that's all we got for today. Um, if you just want to hold on the line here, we'll we'll wrap this up here real quick. All right. All right. All right. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>